It's podcast day. I recorded this one yesterday after waking up with a stuffy nose and throat ache. And as I'm editing today, we're welcoming coughing to the party as well. So forgive my off-the-chart sandpaper voice today and any coughing fits you may hear in this intro. Without further ado, here's this week's random Life with Dogs anecdote. I have a favorite small town outside of Mexico City, and the other week Chai joined Game and Me there for the first time. She did fantastic generalizing her indoor potting behavior to a third new bathroom where I put a pee pad. I can definitely travel with the girl, even though she may never be housebroken. And she did so well in yet another new place, and also practiced running along a little bit with the car on a dirt road for the second time. I'm really proud of what a good travel dog she's turning out to be. All right, on to today's episode. Since I don't give much of an intro there, here's the gist. You'll hear me talk with Emmy O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, and co-author together with Emma Nabdeladi of Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune 2052-2072. to I highly recommend both books and will put the info in the scribbles from the edge of the universe. Also, since I was half sick yesterday, I completely forgot to ask Emmy whether and where she wants to be found on the interwebs. But no worries, I'll put her info into the scribbles as well. Happy listening! I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you so much, Emmy, to agreeing to be on my podcast. Because I, I like to give my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves rather than reading a bio about them. Let me turn the metaphorical microphone over to Emmy O'Brien and let her introduce herself in whichever way you would like. Just if you have any non-human animals in your life, because lots of our listeners are dog people or other animal people, please tell us about them too. Your pronouns, your work, whatever excites you these days. Sure. So I live in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I've written a couple of books that I think is the reason you reached out to me. And I work as a psychotherapist uh, and I'm in training as a psychoanalyst. And I spent many years doing different types of organizing and activism, both in paid organizer positions and in various volunteer-driven far-left groups. Um, so I've been done a lot of social movement work and did my PhD writing about uh, thinking about social movements. I have two cats. Um, they're sisters. They're bonded sisters. They're both here very close to me at the moment. They're Cole and Lux, named for two communist women in the early 20th century, Alexandra Kolontai and Rosen Luxemburg. At the moment, Lux is sitting in her cat seat uh, at the window, and Cole is walking around trying to get settled around me, trying to figure out if she wants to sit on my lap or not. And they spend a lot of time racing each other from one end of the apartment to the yeah. other. Um, Cole's tail. <laughs> yeah, and I use she and her pronouns. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yes, uh, indeed, the reason I invited you is that I read your latest book. Well, first I heard an interview with you on the Gender Reveal podcast, and then mm -hmm. I picked up Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. I found it so inspiring and so hopeful. And then I read the novel you have co-authored with Iman Abdeladi, whose name I hope I'm not totally butchering. I really like that I read them in this order because I feel like I had a theoretical framework first and then kind of a practical imagination. And both of them mm -hmm. really gave me hope that I haven't had in a long time. I feel like the last time I felt this way was when I read 
that must have been 20 years ago. I think the author's name is Bellamy or Bellamy, Looking Backwards. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that book? I am, yeah. Then I just realized like, like that world didn't seem to be happening anytime soon. Um, and then I read like things like The Uninhabitable Earth. And I just felt like, well, like looking around, we're just all going to die. But um, getting back to your books and a more positive note, they make me feel that maybe a different world may even be possible within our lifetime. And let's start with the title. Family Abolition is the, the main title and Capitalism and the Communizing of Care is the subtitle. One quote that I wrote down from the book is, Family Abolition is a commitment to making the, ne- the care necessary for human flourishing freely available throughout society. Rather than relying solely on one's intimate personal relationships, access to care should be built into the social fabric of our collective lives. Could you say a little more about this and why family evolution is so central to creating a juster world we would all be able to flourish in? Sure. Um, Yeah, of course, there are a lot of different ways of approaching that question. And one that is somewhat informed by the novel and um, uh, that I developed throughout family evolution is thinking about what it would take to get to a free society, to a more just society. And that that trying to theorize that, trying to see our present work and how we live in the moment and what we're fighting for in the moment in some sort of relation to the world that we want to live in and a world that would support human flourishing and care for each other and recognizing that this would require a really massive transformation of how things are produced and distributed. So sort of thinking about the economic, it would require a really profound transformation of how uh, collective life is governed, the kind of decisions that we make together and how we how we navigate conflict, how we um, administer society in many ways. So really a profound transformation of the state. And that family abolition is a way of theorizing what that transformation might look like on the register of our personal lives. So that the way that our lives are organized into relatively isolated private households as a really key site for where we get the care that we need to survive, how we manage gaps in being able to work, how we get the emotional support in a day-to-day way that this form of the private household is really, particularly the nuclear family, is really relatively unique to capitalism and is a form that really lends itself to survival under capitalism. There are good reasons in a capitalist society uh, where people are dependent on wage labor that everyone forms in the nuclear families and does their best to stay in them. It's a strategy of survival in a quite hostile and difficult world. And that family abolition is imagining that the care that we need, that we find in families as being really, as the quote you you read indicated, as really being universally available and unconditionally available and spread throughout society, built into collective social institutions that we share. And within that, people could continue to form families. They might choose to partner or parent or all sorts of things. But in our society right now, Forming a family has a very strong coercive element to it. No individual goes out and forces us to form a family most of the time. But the economic conditions of our world make surviving without a family very, very challenging. And for some people, simply impossible. 
and that a that a better world, a juster world, a world that we can fight for in the here and now and potentially win reforms to move in that direction would expand the support and availability for survival outside of the family that then allows people to make more free and open and self-determined choices about how they want to live with people, how they want to love, how they want to care for each other. And issues like parenting and elder care and romance and all sorts of things that we you know are currently organized within the family, that those being universally available would then allow people, allow the basis for a more free kind of intimate life. Yeah, like I remember one of my favorite quotes from that book is, only if you're free to leave, can you truly choose to stay? Certainly something that I believe very strongly, and we see this all the time, that that if people are in a romantic relationship, whether it's good or not, and there's um, an economic compulsion to stay, if leaving your partner would involve a significant drop in your well-being, your material well-being in the world, that, and this is just one dimension of this coercion, there are others centered around violence and social expectations and state policies and migration policies are a huge one. Yeah. But just the simple economic compulsion that leaving your partner, you might end up quite poor uh, or much poorer than you are. That's going to create the conditions where people are not going to think very hard about whether the relationship works for them or not, and where it takes really enormous adversity to motivate somebody to leave. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. yeah. I feel like, like even just, yeah, as long as things are not terrible, it's usually easier to stay than to leave. And so many people make that choice. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And for some people, you know, disabled people, people whose migration status depends on it, people who are aging and approaching death, children, people who are vulnerable to abuse in relationships, people that are in economically precarious circumstances, like all of these things can really intensify the compulsion that's already built into families in, in a, yeah. under racial capitalism you know the other person cannot leave either if they are a decent human being because they know that within the system even if they would be fine their previous partner would not and yeah. you you don't want to let that happen even if you don't love them romantically anymore or whatever was the initial right. reason you formed that relationship and that's just that's really sad I move between different registers of critique in the book, and one is this basic moral principle that how well we live and whether we have what we need should not be dependent on who we love. Yeah. That seems like a very straightforward concept that, you know, when you think about it, it, for most people, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And that principle would require a really massive transformation in how our society is organized. Yes. I, who we love and who we happen to be related to is the way that I write about it. So who your parents happen to be should not determine your economic well-being in the world, your chances of survival, your chances of receiving the support you need for human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a so-called social democracy in Austria, and then just having more and more contact with the U.S. was already kind of shocking, <laughs> because many things I'm taking for granted in a system that is all but perfect are just not happening in places like the U.S. I'm not sure the U.S. is a democracy, but it's certainly not. Nothing about it is socially minded. 
I continue being astonished at things that I just take for granted, like free education or healthcare for everyone, even if it is tied to a state, that that's just not really a thing in the U.S. It's just wild to me. And also, sometimes you talk to someone from the U.S. and they see a place like Austria, like a socialist country. And I'm like, like that is so far from being socialist. <laughs> like the, the anchoring point you, we start out from is just often so different. And so many things that Austria has, for example, and I left Austria because I wasn't happy there. They're not ideal, but they're already way better than things I see in other places outside of Austria. And that is depressing. Yeah. My book's relationship to social democracy is, is somewhat complex, that I think there's no question that many of the benefits of social democracy are things that should be widely available and have the capacity, the potential to significantly undermine the coercive imposition of families in people's lives, to expand the capacity of people to love differently uh, in, in richer and fuller ways that, you know, universal health care, affordable housing, universal higher education, that all of these things are, you know, in a in a society like the United States are really dependent on marital relations or familial relations. In a social democratic context, they're much more widely available. So hypothetically, that could really lead people to choose not to marry or choose to organize non-traditional household arrangements or raise children very differently. But historically, social democratic societies often involved an enormous amount of very deliberate effort to design programs in such a way to force or encourage or facilitate traditional nuclear family formations. And that was tied up with the relationship between social democratic states and the economy that often they depended on, a on an economic structure based on full employment. So they really expected massive labor market participation by householders, by men who are head of households. And then they designed social democratic programs around the people who couldn't quite fit into that, but in a way that was designed to never exceed the well-being of uh, partnering, having a husband or a father that's working in the labor force. And so that they were designed very deliberately to encourage heterosexual nuclear family formation. And they were designed under economic conditions that increasingly around the world have deteriorated, that we've really seen a dismantling of social democratic programs in many, many countries and an acceleration of neoliberal economic policy that I would argue is not just driven by sort of evil malice, although that's certainly part of it, but also driven by the changing global economic conditions of capital accumulation that on some level make it much harder to imagine a sort of return or winning expansion of social democracy in most places at most times. I really consider many social democratic programs to be what I call a progressive anti-family reform but I'm also quite skeptical of the sort of social democratic path as being a viable one for most people in most places. No, I agree with you. I can see that. I think my parents' generation is the last generation that is going to reap the benefits of that system, basically, yeah. because they were both working their entire lives and they paid into social security and into pension, whatever. So they're still going to get that. But 
no generation after like i cannot imagine that the people who are paying into the into the tax and pension social security systems now are ever going to see that they're because they are the ones who are supporting my parents generation now right but the younger generations because people live longer and the retirement age for example in austria hasn't really been raised that much and people have fewer children and people are still xenophobic, so they don't let the people who would actually right. That's that's a key part in. of it. Open borders would solve yeah. this question of aging populations very easily. Yeah, I feel like I'm seeing it crumbling before my eyes. Yeah, this is quite complex as a set of questions. You know, in the United States, there's this big effort at dismantling and attacking and privatizing Social Security, and the idea that Social Security could not possibly survive in the world is an idea actually promulgated by the right wing in the service of trying to privatize it. And I think some of these things really are worth fighting for and defending and believing that they could be preserved. But ultimately, we need a politics that goes beyond that, that sees a different way of challenging capitalism and meeting our material needs. Yeah. When I moved to Vienna from a tiny rural town, I was really excited. And I remember this first time I went to a meeting of the Communist Party in Vienna. And it was so disillusioning because it was all these old white men sitting around in a circle drinking beer and basically just socializing. And one, I did not fit in there. And two, I had pictured something vivid, like people with ideas, people who were passionate about something. And it wasn't that. I also realized that in Austria, the Communist Party is still what um, Marx called the critical utopian socialism, where the idea is, oh, if we just convince everyone that clearly our picture of a state would be better, then everyone is going to peacefully agree with us. At first, I learned that, no, we're not going to peacefully convince anyone of anything because people who are benefiting from capitalism are not going to be willing to let that go. Because we make an argument that, oh, but everybody could have enough. And two, I realized at some point that state communism is not the solution either. I was four years old when the Iron Curtain fell. So I know a few people who grew up in the Soviet Union. And I dated someone like 10 years older than me who also grew up there. And we had conversations about that. And they were like, we didn't starve, but we were not happy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. These ideas that I, as a very young person, had of what things could look like in a better world, I realized that none of this was feasible or possible. At some point, I just like, kind of walked away from all of this and did my own thing outside of the system, inside of the system, in my own way that works for me, but isn't changing anyone's world. And for a lot of queer and trans people, that's just essential for survival is figuring out in a world that really facilitates and depends on private nuclear family formation, traditional wage labor, and all these things, that there's so many people that don't fit into that. Uh, it's a hustle, right? We have to build networks of mutual support and care. We need to put together non-traditional forms of employment. Often, you know, many people, many trans people end up in criminalized activities of various sorts to survive. And that this is part of the kind of logic of racial capitalism in the private family. It's the production of lots and lots of people that are excluded from it that then have a precarious existence of various sorts. What I really liked about both family abolition and everything for everyone 
is that you seem to just take it for granted that, that there is no peaceful way to get to a better world that is just for everybody. You earlier alluded to Marx's critique of the utopian tradition, and that's one that I've been thinking and talking a lot about in the both Everything for Everyone and Family Abolition in different registers, different ways are both utopian books. They're about envisioning a free society. And at the same time, I have a really a, a strong commitment to Marxism and really agree with the Marxist critique of utopianism. I think where Marx is correct is that the way you get to a just society is not by selling it as an idea, not by planning such a society and then going out and trying to convince people to implement it. So I really don't see these books as a blueprint or as a program to try to convince people of that then people go out and implement based on that. That Marx, you know, and this was a major political tradition in the early 19th century and late 18th century in Europe of utopian socialists. And Marx is really arguing with them. And I think he was very correct in arguing that the way that the possibility of getting beyond capitalism was created by the contradictions the capitalist society produces within itself. And the people who, due to their conditions in capitalism, have reasons to struggle, have reasons to fight, have something to fight for in their own survival and well-being, and have reasons to want to live in a different society. And whether or not they have the capacity to do so or the political infrastructure or the political opportunities to do so is a is a different question, but that there's that there's something in the structure of society that produces a large number of people that have reasons for things to really want to change, an imminent contradiction that can then unfold into a struggle. And that it's in the terms of that struggle itself that any future is going to be made, right? That any society beyond capitalism that we might win is only going to be won by the people in struggle together. When people are struggling, it's usually not blueprints that guide them. It's the material conditions of their lives. It's the social relations of care and solidarity in which they find themselves. And it's the political opportunities that they confront through struggle itself. So this is, I, I believe this very strongly, but I think many people have, uh, Marxists and people in those traditions, have taken this uh, to mean that there's no reason to talk about the future at all that there's no reason to talk about the world that we want to live in at all. And I, I think that that's wrong, that talking about the world that we want to live in is a way of articulating something about our desires in the present, about our critique of the conditions in which we find ourselves in the world, our difficulties in, in surviving in this world as it is, and our desire for something different. And that that sort of imagining a freer society is something that people already do in struggle all the time. You know, like during the rebellions recently in the United States, the idea of Black Lives Matter, that is a utopian demand, right? And the idea of abolishing the police came up a lot, right? It's this revolutionary vision of communism in many ways. So these utopian horizons sort of emerge in the course of struggle and actually having a chance to articulate those, envision those, flesh those out can play a very powerful role in struggle in the present. So this sort of leads into your question that in the conditions of racial capitalism that the overwhelming majority of the world lives under, 
it's going to take uh, a revolutionary struggle, probably one that involves a great deal of violence in order to get to a just society. And probably the opportunities for that kind of revolutionary struggle are not going to easily emerge without the further intensification of the many crises that exist around the world of ecological crisis, political crisis, economic crisis. I'm not one that thinks that leftists or radicals should encourage crisis, that, you know, the costs on poor people and people of color in these many crises are really extremely high, but that the world's going to produce them. The capitalism is a crisis machine, and these crises are going to intensify and escalate. And the basis to stabilize them, I think, is really gone in the world. And then we're going to see the, the, the rise of various kinds of, of fascisms and nationalisms. We're going to see the massive growth of uh, ecological refugees. And we're going to see more and more sectors of society that the capitalist economy is not meaningfully able to take care of or protect. And that these will be, there will be many opportunities in the coming decades for revolutionary struggles to emerge and fight and potentially win that regardless of what we do about it, but that those movements, in order for them to exist and fight and win, that really takes our willingness to organize together in the present, our building relationships of solidarity with each other now, are beginning to develop the kinds of movements and organizations and campaigns that could lay the foundation for a broader revolutionary movement. And there is a convincing that needs to happen, but usually that convincing is in the immediate context of struggle. When we're talking with a coworker about a union or a strike, when we're talking with our neighbor about a tenant campaign, when we're talking with people in queer and trans social networks about the need to like build out more infrastructure and supporting more marginal members of the community, that these are, you know, these are debates and discussions that need to happen in the fabric of our lives towards yeah. building movement and struggle and solidarity together. Is that the reason that you see queer and trans people at the forefront of a revolution? Because it's often the most marginalized communities who see themselves almost forced to struggle and become radicalized. I certainly think that's a very important part of it. Like right now, trans people face intense marginalization in many, many sectors of society. And trans people are grossly overrepresented in the United States in every major movement of the last 15 years. That trans people have played central leadership roles in struggles around Black Lives Matter and current labor organizing and labor strikes that are happening in struggles against Cop City and other sort of expansion of militarized policing. Queer people and trans people play major roles in the solidarity with Gaza against the Israeli genocide. The reasons for this are complex. I think being marginalized is a very important one. A kind of history of struggle and community infrastructure around solidarity and support of each other is, I think, is a very important one. I don't think there's anything inherent about being queer and trans to lend itself to radical politics. There are important trans fascists in the United States right now, you know, who are significant influencers um, and around the world and in Europe. And I think, uh, you know, the logic of fascism can morph and grow over time and that some queer and trans people aspire to very, very normative lives that are really embedded within the logic of capital and the state. 
And I think most queer and trans people would like a lot more economic stability than we have and a lot more social acceptance than we have. But that in the conditions of the world that we live in, many, many queer and trans people end up quite marginalized. And through that, end up playing very important roles when they're welcome or in working class struggles, anti-racist struggles around the world in very, very important ways. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. The other part of queer and trans people playing an important role in struggle is often our marginalization, specifically from the family. Traditional family formations, the nuclear family, and even a private households as an economic unit all lend themselves to certain types of de-radicalization, to certain types of social conservatism that people might or might not participate in, but that queer and trans people often end up marginalized from traditional families and marginalized from their families of origin and facing many, many obstacles to forming stable private households of various sorts. So I think that that plays a very, very important role in the kind of social position of particularly working class queer and trans people, queer and trans people of color, in ending up finding ourselves at the forefront of many social struggles. Yeah, which brings me to another question. You also critique chosen family. So you say all chosen families today are lived under capitalist conditions, constrained and torqued by the brutality of wage labor and racial capitalism. Could you say more about this? Sure. Yeah, I try to have a dialectical relationship to it, that I, on the one hand, feel a lot of solidarity and support for people trying to form chosen families, for forming non-traditional households, for forming networks of mutual support and care. And I think there's many, many examples of queer and trans flourishing that are really dependent on building these kinds of networks and that we should do everything we can to build them, to defend them, to expand them, to deepen them. And I feel an unambiguous solidarity and support for that and certainly depend on it in my own life. It would be a much darker and more difficult world for trans people without that. But that I'm very skeptical about the idea that this really could provide the foundation for a freer, more just society for trans people in general. Often when people form non-traditional family arrangements or care relations, they still end up having the function in the unit of the private household. It's like, who do you count on when you lose a job? Who do you count on when you need help with health care? Who do you live with? Who do you share wealth with or debt with? Who do you move with when you need to get a job somewhere else? And then the dynamics. So all of these conditions of trying to survive under racial capitalism lend themselves, force non-traditional household arrangements to function much like private families via the private household. And then on the other hand, you know, the violence of white supremacy in immigration policy and in mass incarceration, in police violence, in the regulation and policing of families through the child protective services system, that all of these really put enormous violent pressure on certain kinds of arrangements, particularly for people of color. We should form chosen family. We must form chosen family. We must fight to defend that. But that the real stakes is changing state policy and changing the arrangement of property and the economy in order to create the conditions for these chosen families to really be able to flourish and survive. And that without that, they're going to be under a lot of pressure 
that fragment people's relationships, that tear apart people's communities, or that force people's arrangements to more and more conform to all the contradictions and violences characteristic of family life. So we need to change the world. If we want chosen family to thrive, we need to change the world in which they exist. And the chosen families in and of themselves do not necessarily provide the means of doing it, although they might support us in being able to participate in struggles in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I think you're right. So what you're saying is that in today's world, chosen family is a means of survival, but at the same time, it's not a way out. Exactly. It's still subject to the same forces that the people you would be related to by blood, for example, are subject to. Yeah. I guess it can only be truly chosen if the world has changed. Well said. Well, let's switch gears a bit, if that's okay with you, and talk about one chapter in the novel. Yeah. Many of them have things that really spoke to me, but I finally decided on the last one, which was written by you. Would it make sense to sort of describe the premise of the novel a little bit, like to sort of introduce it as a book? Uh, yes, please. Would you? Sure. So it's called, I think we haven't mentioned the title, it's called Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. And it's a collection of fictional oral histories with fictional people who participated in various ways in a global communist revolution that eventually arrived in New York. So a lot of it is about people's participation in New York and the transformation of New York neighborhoods and New York life, but as part of a broader global process. And that that this revolutionary movement emerged in the midst of escalating and intensifying crises that involved a really tremendous amount of trauma and suffering through the 2030s and 2040s. And then the struggle unfolded in the 2050s and 60s. The book sort of links people's personal experiences, their psychic and emotional lives, their lives of struggling with trauma to these broad sweeping political and social events that they were a part of. So it's a depiction of a successful revolution. And a man, my co-author, my best friend and I are in the book posed as the interviewers, as very old ladies and oral historians who are going around interviewing people. We co-wrote the book, but we're the primary author of chapters where we present ourselves as the interviewer. And then our co-author sort of helped rewrite and develop and flesh out those chapters. Yeah, like one thing I left is that you picture a future you yourself still in. It's not like way down the road, but you get to be part of it. Yeah. That is also, I feel like that's so hopeful. Yeah. And not as the heroes of the story necessarily, but as participants alongside yeah. many, many other people. Yeah. You get to live that life in that society and document it. Mm -hmm. It did not feel completely out there to me. I read that book and I thought, yeah, like, I can see that. Yeah. We definitely wanted to aim for that. And part of that is that it's not like, oh, everything went peacefully, but the people you interview are traumatized and have partly lived through very difficult conditions to get to where they are. And that made it feel possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Someone described our book once as a post-traumatic utopianism. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. One thing I've been skeptical about is that when I surround myself with people who are picturing better worlds, 
it's always very much community-based. And I feel like everyone wants to live in community and with other people and in group houses and be very close to each other. And I myself love visiting these spaces, but I don't see myself living in them. I have lived with other people in all kinds of constellations, but I really like living by myself. And I am like the, the last character you interview, Icati Sanchez is the only person in the book who lives by themselves. That I was like, oh, nice. You'll still see space for that too in the yeah. future world. Absolutely. I feel like often it's this idea that there's only community and no way to step out of it. It's almost the only option. And I would like a future where there also is an option for someone like me. Like I love contributing and working with people and spending time with people. But I love just as much being able to go to my own space in the end of the day and retreat. One of the things I like about Mexico City, where I'm currently based, is the anonymity of it, that I can disappear into the shadows when I want to. That last chapter was like, ah, oh, that is so nice. <laughs> because it doesn't mean, like, I sometimes feel like it's being posed as, oh, you either want that sharing and that free contribution or you don't. But I want both. If I didn't have to pay rent, I wouldn't charge anyone. I would still be doing the same thing. I would still be in community with people. But in the end of the day, I would want to be able to be a loner if I want to be. Yeah, certainly quite a bit in our world is much more collective, right? Cooking and cleaning and childcare and, you know, many questions of domestic labor are much more collectivized. People don't necessarily as I envision the communes depicted in the books, people might choose to live alone within them, but then there are group meals that they might join regularly rather than everybody cooking in their own private kitchen. So that uh, even within the structure of the commune, you know, opportunities for retreat, for solitary life, for alone time are readily available to people and perhaps more available to people than they are in, in our society right now that where you might really depend on forming a nuclear household to meet your material well-being. But Alcatsi Sanchez is an unusual character in really choosing to live outside of the communes altogether. Yeah. And that, that, that we definitely imagine uh, in a, a future, a world where people are able to make a really wide diversity of choices about how to organize their lifestyles and their well-being in a way that works for them. So that the sort of the norm, the center of gravity of how social life is reproduced moves from the nuclear household into the commune structure, but that the opportunities for living outside of that are quite widely available. Arcasi Sanchez lives on offshore platforms, a little bit like perhaps like an oil drilling rig or something like that is yeah. how I imagine them. But what the platforms are is the above water section of a gigantic underwater algae-based server farm. So that extends for multiple miles off the New Jersey coast. So it's algae that is linked together as an, a biological computer system that is a processing hub, one of a number of massive biological-based processing hubs around the world for the computer infrastructure that people use to engage in social planning. So rather than the state and market mechanisms sort of deciding what gets made and how it's distributed and where it's needed, the people engage in a deliberative 
complex deliberative processes online equipped with various tools of social planning to help figure out what's needed and that these sort of digital infrastructures are provided for a region of the world by the algae. And one of the things Alcazi Sanchez ends up talking about is that the algae is it's been discovered is quite sentient. It dreams. But what it dreams about is apparently unrelated to the task it fulfills. It dreams yeah. about things that are mysterious and unknown to people and that it seems to have no interest in sharing with human life. It's a way of sort of trying to think about the kind of material infrastructures of social planning that would be necessary for society to function beyond capitalist market mechanisms. But it's also a way of thinking about a kind of encounter with radical otherness, with yeah. a kind of sentient otherness that is beyond sort of our relational understanding of life. Yeah. And at the same time, the algae doesn't mind providing us with its... Apparently not. Yeah. That was a nice parallel to Sanchez's own life. They want to be part of the society and they're happy to be part of it, but they also just do their own thing. And yeah. it's just the way it is. Yeah. I think that's correct. Yeah. Before we wrap up, can I ask you one more thing that's a kind of unrelated, but I think you might have an answer. A friend and I have been talking about quite a bit lately. I basically have the great privilege of spending about one third of my day doing things that I charge for and two thirds of my day doing things that I don't charge for that I'm passionate about. And part of that is creating free resources about stock training. I usually call the part that I make the money off that I use to pay my rent with, I call that work. And I never know what to call the other part, which is very similar, but nobody pays me for it, right? Is that work? Is that hobby? What is that? How do we define work? And my friend is in the same position in terms of being an artist. So when they paint, is that work? Is that a hobby? Is it only work when they get commissioned to paint something and get paid for it? Marx, in his early writing in the Social Economic Manuscripts of 1844 in the German Ideology and a couple of other places, he sort of grappled with this question. And he saw that humans are capable of an immense variety of creative laboring activities in the world that create and transform the world and create and transform ourselves in the process. And that humans have this capacity to pursue activities that give a variety of different kinds of pleasures that enhance our powers in the world, enhance our ability to relate to others and engage and that we're transformed in that process, and that these activities are then in a capitalist society divided up into, sliced up into forms of wage labor or the separation between labor that is productive for the economy, that is profitable for an employer, that pays us, and labor that then is excluded from that, that's denigrated, that's devalued, you know, that includes raising children, it includes things that we do out of love, it includes our participation in political struggle, it includes all these activities that it's the logic of capitalist society that artificially devalues these things. The primary organizing principle of capitalist society is what makes a profit what generates capitalist value. And that that's not a decision of any given individual. That's about what can be resold, what can be profitably circulated, right? Recognizing how our own lives 
are kind of sliced up and alienated and fragmented by the fact that we have to figure out how to reproduce and survive in these particular material conditions of capitalist society. So, you know, there's a quite famous Marx quote that envisions communism as a society where you could freely engage in a wide variety of activities without becoming that as an identity, as a profession that you're ascribed to. I could look it up. Hold on. Okay, uh, here's one version of it. For as soon as the distribution of labor comes into being, each man has a particular exclusive sphere of activity, which is forced upon him and from which he cannot escape. He is a hunter, a fisherman, a herdsman, or a critical critic, and must remain so if he does not want to lose his means of livelihood. While in communist society, where no one, nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming hunter fisherman, herdsman, or critic. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we humans are capable of such rich, immense beauty in the world. And capitalism both enlists our creative potentials, puts them to work, and fragments them, alienates them, and puts them to work in creating an infrastructure, a form of social power, of wealth, and the state that is destroying the planet, that is ultimately killing us all, that is producing machines of immense genocide, and that the task is to wrestle control over that machine, to destroy that machine, and to transform the immense human labor and ingenuity and effort that goes into the production of society in the service of human flourishing and in the service of just and sane lives. I think I'll just stop using the word work altogether. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you one last question and then I will let you go. I have two and you can pick one. One is how does psychoanalysis factor into the building of a better world? The other one would be just share what your ideal future would look like, the world you want to live in, if it is different from everything for everyone, the book. Because if it's that, then I will just tell everyone to go buy the book. I think given the hardships of the world we live in and given the difficulty of getting to the new one, everything for everyone was very much an effort at depicting a society that I'd want to live in, yeah. a society that feels worth fighting for and worth living for. Yeah. Yeah, I would want to live in that one too. And I would probably be friends with uh, Alcamzi Sanchez. <laughs> sounds great. Well, thank you so much for, again, for making the time. Of course. Well, have a lovely day. You too. And everyone listening, go buy Everything for Everyone, as well as Family Abolition from your local bookstores, not from Amazon. Sounds great. Bye, Caden. Bye.